is my great privilege this afternoon to introduce this year's commencement speaker, Dr. Alyssa Yukiko Whitegroat. Alyssa Yukiko Whitegroat serves as assistant professor of art and art history at Covenant College, where she has just completed her fifth year as a member of our faculty. Professor Whitegroat received her BA in interdisciplinary studies from Covenant College in 2004 and then went on to earn both an MA and a PhD in art history and archaeology from Washington University in St. Louis. Her research and teaching explores representations of race and gender in art and visual culture from the 19th century to the present. Most recently, Professor Whitegroat's essay on Hawaiian landscape painting and discourses of paradise was published in the Religion and Arts Journal. This is especially exciting since she was born and raised in Honolulu, Hawaii, and grew up seeing some of these paintings at her local museum. Her essay on looking justly at race in photography will be included in the forthcoming sequel to Heal Us, Emmanuel, A Call for Racial Reconciliation, Representation, and Unity in the Church. As interesting and exciting as publications are, she would probably be the first person to tell you that her passion is for teaching. and She loves introducing students to the largely unfamiliar discipline of art history. Professor Whitegroat lives in St. Elmo with her husband, Noel, also an alumnus of the college, and with her two sons, Ezekiel and Miles. Would you please welcome Professor Alyssa Yukiko Whitegroat. Class of 2018, you're here. You did it. This is great. As an alumna myself who was in those very seats a good many years ago, it is an incredible honor to bid you farewell and Godspeed on behalf of my colleagues and the college. And as we say back home in Hawaii, ho'omai ka'iana. You can ask President Halverson later if he would like to wish you the same. We are all delighted to celebrate with you today, but I, I have a confession to make. I don't really know how to do this without images, so if you'll indulge me. In 2007, the Colombian artist Doris Salcedo made a literal crack in an art museum floor. And not just a little crack, it was a 548 foot long meandering crack that started as a hairline fracture and then grew to about a foot at its widest point. And it wasn't in just any museum, it was in the Tate Modern, home of Britain's National Collection of Modern and Contemporary Art. And then get this, she was paid to do it. For several years, the Tate Modern commissioned artists to make work specifically for Turbine Hall, a huge six-story tall room. But when Salcedo was given the chance to fill the space, she chose instead to divide it. The reaction was mixed. Thousands of people came to see it. Many, yes, cracked jokes. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that big of a reaction. Um, Others, like the woman who was on her phone looking for her friends, just tripped. The New York Times reported one tourist stating, art is dangerous sometimes. And indeed, Salcedo's crack was dangerous in at least two ways. It was a threat to people who weren't paying attention, and it was a threat to people who preferred to not think about their ruptures in their own lives and systems. Now, here's the thing. I don't like dangerous things. 
I am not a naturally bold person. In fact, I would consider fear to be one of my besetting sins, though I didn't really realize this until I was a student at Kevnet. There, I was afraid that my theology was wrong, I was afraid to disappoint people, afraid I wouldn't get a job or get married or have children or have a generally fulfilling life. I was very much afraid to play flag football and look stupid or get injured. I am still afraid to give this talk. <laughs> but during my last two years at Covenant, the Holy Spirit repeatedly confronted me with the sin of fear. My schedule seemed populated with classes that were uniquely equipped to make me squirm. Like many of you, I took 20th century history from Dr. Follett, and it just undid me. How was the 20th century so bad everywhere, everywhere? And how had I never really absorbed this before? And then I took critical theory from Dr. Wildeman and art and criticism from Morty, and I found myself grappling with new ideas that seemed so powerful, but also so threatening to my cozy sense of self. I was afraid that these unfamiliar ideas actually made too much sense to me. I was afraid that recognizing gross sins of our collective past meant that I couldn't be proud of my present identity. I was afraid that acknowledging the suffering of the Belgian Congo would make my own personal suffering inconsequential. And how could I reconcile a God who was supposedly loving and sovereign with these histories of pervasive oppression and exploitation? I was afraid that if I couldn't account for that seeming contradiction, then God would have to disappear altogether. It felt, in a lot of ways, like a great crack drifting through me, an unstoppable rupture. Dora Salcedo titled her crack, Shibboleth, a reference to Judges 12 where the Gileadites sifted out their enemies by asking them to say the word Shibboleth, which sounded different in different dialects. So a misspoken Shibboleth became a death sentence. The term has since come to mean a custom, phrase, or use of language that acts as a text of belonging to a particular social group. It's an exclusionary tool. Salcedo cracked open the floor in an effort to make visible the hidden ways in which we police our boundaries, the invisible tests that we give to each other in order to maintain our own comfort or our sense of security. And something akin to this was happening in me. The fault lines had always been there, but now they were being pushed up to the surface until the chasm could no longer be ignored. And yet, because God is kind and faithful, that place of fracture would become a site of learning and healing. A few years later, I went to graduate school to get my doctorate in art history. Turns out, there was even more sad stuff out there to study. A litany of ways that the Imago Dei had been abused and denied in images, even aesthetically pleasing ones. But there was also so much beauty to be found, so many instances of image bearers making things that helped others see the world in exciting, dignifying ways. While working through this tension, I began to take notice of the way that the people of Israel narrated their history. How do we look back rightly? Throughout Deuteronomy, for example, the people are constantly reminded that they were once slaves in Egypt. In 1 Samuel, Samuel marks the site of God's mercy with an Ebenezer, a stone that serves as a physical reminder of God showing up and interceding in a tangible way. But there's another aspect to Israel's history telling, and that involves marking their failures. The flip side of an Ebenezer is a place like Mara, where the water was bitter, or Meribah, where the people tested the Lord. 
Psalm 106 brings these practices together in a strange and wonderful unity. The psalmist recounts in excruciating detail the many times that the people of Israel forgot God, despised him, murmured, rebelled, and yoked themselves to idols. Read it out loud. It takes a painfully long time to get through 37 verses of failure. And yet, and yet, the psalm's penultimate stanza is a recounting of historical grace. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. The psalm then concludes with a petition and a blessing. Save us, O Lord, and praise the Lord. A request for present help is bound up in a truthful accounting of a communal past. Faithfully telling history demands that we recall both the moments of triumph and the moments of abject failure. The psalmist is not ashamed to recount his community's shortcomings. So should we call him unpatriotic, cynical, ungrateful? No, it is precisely through detailing their failures that he finds the certainty of God's grace. God and God's actions become the crux of his historical narrative. Furthermore, this kind of history telling provides a context for our present individual suffering. Throughout Psalm 106, the psalmist uses the pronouns they and them, referring to the people of Israel in the past. But the recitation of history is actually preceded by a personal pronoun. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them. A strange thing happened in that gallery in London in 2007. Visitors began to inspect Dora Saucedo's crack. They paced up and down its length. They got down on their hands and knees and pressed their cheek to the floor. They stuck their hands and their heads in the gap. Emboldened, perhaps, by recognizing the crack as an artwork rather than a geological threat, people contorted their whole bodies trying to understand the nature of the rupture, the shibboleth. Faithfulness demands that we also look around. Jesus, of course, is our model in this. Jesus invites encounters with those who do not pass cultural tests of acceptance. When a woman creeps into a room full of men uninvited and begins to wash Jesus' feet with her tears, she breaks every social rule, every rule of order that the Pharisees had known. But Jesus calls her actions beautiful, and he lifts her up as a model. He sees her on the margins, and he centers her despite how uncomfortable she makes every single other person in that room. And it is Jesus who is grieved by the suffering of those who he knows personally, but also those who are strangers to him. In the midst of his own humiliation in the Garden of Gethsemane, Christ remains aware of others. He knows the agony that awaits him, and yet he sees Malchus, a slave, whose ear has been sliced off by an impetuous Simon Peter. Peter, who failed to look back, or to look around, disfigures another man's body. Enough of this, Jesus says, and he reaches out and he heals the slave who has no recourse to justice on his own. When Jesus recognizes Malchus' suffering, does it diminish the reality of his own pain? Of course not. Sometimes we believe that dignity is a pie to be divvied up among us. And so if we grant dignity to one group suffering or accounting of history, then there must necessarily be left for us. How foolish. We make God small when the reverse should be the case. 
For after all, if Jesus is coming back to make all the sad things untrue, then the more sad things you know, the bigger Jesus has to be in order to undo them. The cracks are already there. Calling out the brokenness does not diminish Jesus's power. It magnifies it. But sometimes the admonition of Galatians 6 or the call to lament can be, feel utterly impossible. How can we bear one another's burdens without being crushed ourselves? Many of you, too many, have suffered deep and personal things. You have lost the ones who love you best. Your bodies have given out on you. You've been violated by those you trusted and darkness has been suffocating. How can you really care, not just Facebook status care, about gun violence, racism, immigration, sexuality, abortion, Syria, human trafficking, the opioid crisis, student loans, and still function? Jesus offers a tenable path in Matthew 11. Come to me, he says, all of you who are burdened and weighed down. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. It is not our performance of lament, our virtue signaling or our wokeness that eases the weight. It is Jesus, Jesus, necessarily bigger, stronger, reconciling all things to himself on earth and heaven, making peace through the blood of his cross. Today, you are leading a community that sought to cultivate, however imperfectly, hopefulness. Not hope in what you will do, but in what Christ has already begun. You know the end of the story, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. And because you have that hope in you, you can be unafraid to poke your head into the cracks that appear, to get on your hands and knees and to see the fault lines of sin that run through our hearts, our relationships, our histories, and our systems. Not because you're cynical or because you're distracting from the gospel or because you're refusing to forgive and forget. No. You do it because you are unafraid. If you go to the Tate Modern now, you might notice something. The crack is gone, but there's still a scar on the floor. It's faded, polished away by thousands of visitors in the intervening years, but it's still there, a rupture that has been restored. A scar also remains on the hands and side of our Savior in glory. The actual embodiment of forgiveness carries a wound. His resurrected body bears the mark of his love for you. And that perfect love drives out fear. So fear not, class of 2018. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by your love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Go forth in this freedom.